heard a lot about this uh, show, the ex-candidates. This has been a pretty thorough interview. These institutions which we've been told to respect and trust are actually completely untrustworthy. Have you confirmed that you are negative before attending tonight if you are unvaccinated? I still see people with masks on and driving and they're in the car by themselves. So you can pay my electricity bill, you think, that was spared. We're teaching them about what it means to be a pansexual instead of teaching them how to do your taxes. It's no for me. I say no to the boys. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Ex Candidates. My name is Stephen Tripp, joined by Adam Zara. Now, Adam, we had a big week last week with Graham Hood and John Larder. Uh, how did you find that episode? Mate, every time I see, you know, um, Hoodie and Larder, it's very hard to keep even um, my, my my eyes dry. Um, just listening to the story and, and, you know, and, you know, the noble cause that they're doing and it's about, you know, humanity and love and um, things like that, you know, just always you know, touches me right in my heart and, um, you know, and I, you know, got a few comments and, um, and a bit of talk back from that, from people who've watched it. Um, it's really, you know, I think people are missing out on that. And I think that's what, um, this whole COVID thing caused that it shows it brought to light, um, you know, people really need other people and people need community. And, um, that's what, um, Hoodie and, and Lada are, um, you know, really, um, on their tours and speaking about is about bringing back, um, community and, you know, patting each other on the back and saying, it's okay, you've fallen, but, you know, here's my hand, I'll help you back up and let's keep going. So it was very important and um, it was always good to see those guys. And um, and, and actually, um, I've, I haven't actually, when we do this kind of thing, we get to have a one-on-one with our very special guests and it's um, it, it gets us um, close to them, um, it creates contacts and, and, and we get a little bit of an uninterrupted um, talk with them so we can ask questions that we might have had and, and, and I think it just shows the humanity behind everything. Not everyone's out there to get your idea, but people believe in what's happening and have information on what's happening and um, it's very important that, um, you know, we, we give them the opportunity to speak. Um, anyway, any all our special viewers out there, um, make sure you click and um, follow us and support us and share us. Um, and to our guests down the bottom here as well, not Vallejo. Vallejo, you've been on here for ages. Um, but uh, we want you to, um, you know, click and share it and and support our page because we are not doing this for money. It's all for free. No one gets paid. Poor Dr. Melissa McCann down there doesn't get paid to come on here, but she's um, dedicating, giving up her time to um, to, sh- to to speak about her story. Um, and we're looking forward to getting to that. So just remember to like and share our stuff. Find us on Twitter, um, Facebook, Rumble, all the channels. Um, you can find us. Just uh, search the X Candidates. Anyway, back to you, Stephen. Yeah, I've said it before. I think the best part of the pandemic, if there is any good parts of it, is that a lot of heroes stood up. And uh, Hoodie and, and and John Larder are, are definitely two of those heroes. I think we've got another one sitting below me here tonight. But before we get to our special guests, we're welcoming back on uh, Paul Vallejo. Now, we've had Paul on as a guest previously. Uh, he was with uh, us during our Peter McCullough interview also he came on with um robin cosford and professor nikolai petrosky and we also had him on on his own interview where he talked about nuclear energy he's a kind of regular science guru that we that we have on he you know fittingly he spent 10 years at nasa as an aerospace engineer how are you going tonight paul yeah really good I very much echo what you're saying it's uh, great to be around heroes you know that's one of the down upsides to it 
really dark time has been meeting the people who have stepped up with courage, you know, people getting out of their comfort zone, putting themselves out to, to really, you know, help. And, and, and you three here uh, on the page are, are, are all heroes, stepping up, stepping forward, doing what you can. And I thank all of you, honestly, deeply. So thank you, Dr. McCann. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. So our special guest tonight is Dr. Melissa McCann. Uh, she's a doctor who's just uh, put forward a case in the federal court uh, related to vaccine industries, uh, in- injuries, sorry. Uh, Dr. McCann, how are you tonight? And can you just give us a little bit of a background first about your legal case before we get a background of, of yourself later? Mm. Um, Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Um, So, yeah, so it's a case that's been filed uh, three months, no, about four months ago now, Um, and it's a a class action. So it's um, what they call representative proceedings. So there's three people who are named and who represent the whole class, and the class is everyone uh, with a serious vaccine injury. Um, And, yeah, I guess it's just going through all the usual um, phases at the moment of um, kind of the preliminary discussions, I guess, amongst the legal teams. And um, it seems like they, they have a few sort of um, either in-person or, or, or um, discussions or meetings and then um, finalise what's called the statement of claim and, um, and that's on the website. And then once that's all um, negotiated, then, then that either, you know, moves to trial or is settled or, um, or whatever happens with it. So that's, that's the stage that it's all at now. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's it's uh, exciting on the one hand, I guess, that there might finally be uh, some of some of this important scientific information heard by the court, and I think most importantly that some of the stories of what have happened to all these people might be heard like properly within a court. Um, so yeah, it's just the waiting game now until it all goes through its different stages. Is there anything that uh, we can do to help to elevate to? Um... Also, is there anything you're hoping to come out in discovery that that is something that we can uh, help help with? Um, yeah, I'm not actually sure when the discovery process sort of starts. Um, it's that's not something that's been d- discussed yet. Um, and uh, we had sort of, you know, early discussions about the different ways that class actions can be can be bought. This is the, the you know from the legal team, and and one of the options is that you can do what's called a preliminary discovery. So if you're not quite sure if you have enough evidence or if it's enough to bring a, a you know a legitimate case, um, you can do do what's called preliminary discovery. But it's it's almost the same as running a case. Like you sort of have to present enough evidence, and there's enough costs, and there's there's days of sort of arguments and things like that, and. And so in the end, um, it was decided that there was enough evidence there from, you know, freedom of information documents and, and a whole range of other, you know, sort of scientific evidence. And, of course, since filing, there's been even more evidence, I guess, that's coming out. So um, I, I hate to think what more we're going to get on Discovery, actually, because mm-hmm. it seems like everything, every bit of new information that comes out is just even more um, 
just outrageous yeah, yeah. so I, I don't I don't know how that will go but in terms of how anyone can help at, at this point it's just really um, fundraising so crowdfunding letting people yeah. know about it directing people to the website would be fantastic because a lot of people still don't know about it and mm-hmm. of course that's censorship you know I tried to start a, um, a Facebook page like I've got a a business, you know, a few couple of businesses, and I thought, oh, I'll start another business page. Um, no, as soon as I hadn't actually even posted anything, I think I put a photo up, but it was called, you know, COVID vaccine um, class action page, and I just got a you know breach of community services, and it was shut down straight away. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's it's obviously still a very uh, sensitive topic. Yeah, my understanding is people who do want to donate. Do, do, do I have I heard correctly that? Uh, if things go well, they might get their donation back. That you need the money up front uh, in order to make sure the legal fees are paid, and hopefully everything will go well. Uh, and so we, we've seen the donation page, and I'm actually personally happy to donate. My partner's brother, uh, Daniel, is vaccine injured, uh, one shot uh, myocarditis from AstraZeneca. Um, the doctors said it was psychological until I asked him to get a D-dimer test, and it was ten times normal. Six wow. trips to the hospital. I mean, I'm sure you've heard many of the stories, uh, you know, and unfortunately it's it's not rare and it is real even with all the gaslighting that's happened. But uh, if I wanted to donate, uh, I'll go through your web page. And, um, and did, did, I, did I hear that correctly, that perhaps uh, the donations are sort of an upfront cost that might be returned or something like that? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly how we want to run it. And I'm so sorry to hear what's happened to your brother. You're right. I hear that um, every day. Um, It's just uh, such a horror. Um, But yeah, how we're running it, it's a really unique way, I guess, of of running the action. So there's no commercial funder. So in Australia, it is legal to um, engage a commercial litigation funder. And that means sort of bringing a case to someone. They're basically like an investment firm. And class actions, generally have a good chance of winning so so they're seen as a fairly favorable thing um, for investors to fund um, but of course there's still a lot of cost and risk with that so they tend to take 40 around 40 percent so that's a huge chunk of what you know should an action like this win it's going to be an enormous amount of money and it seems it just seemed unjust to me that that should go to anyone other than the victims especially this just being such a unique um, action and so and so that meant that also um we didn't engage no win, no fee lawyers. So often as far as the actual fees themselves, um, the, the lawyers might also run on a kind of a no win, no fee basis. And um, they can, you know, there have been some big class actions in Australia, like the pelvic mesh one is, is one example. And, you know, that sort of ended up being a bit of a, I mean, from the outside, just looking at the, the outcome for the victims, it was very long drawn out cases quite astronomical legal fees and um and unfortunately it doesn't seem like the the victims there have actually they will have not been paid anything at this point still so it was just really important to me that if possible (laughs) it could be run in a a different way and so and so that meant having a very small but dedicated legal team and dedicated and um you know uh people who are willing to, I guess, donate their time and energy into putting their claim together and, and yeah, very professional but but small um, small team running it on a, a bit of a, a shoestring and then running it with donations. And so then what I'm that in. means... Take, take my money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what that means is that um, that all that anyone will have to pay back if it wins is just a small, fra- like whatever the share is, the fraction of those fees, which are going to be, um, yeah, I think, uh, very, very, very 
much less than what. Uh, so I was first given quotes to run an action. Like I spoke to quite a few barristers and lawyers actually before um, getting into contact with the the legal team that we're with, and um, I, I was sort of est- given estimates anywhere between ten and fifty million, and and was sort of said, look, you, you know, you'd have to. If you want to be, you know, run something like this for these people, then you know you, you'll have to engage a, a funder. And I don't know, it just seems so um, so much about this situation is so unique, and so yeah. it's being run in a very unique way. But yes, donations will be returned if it wins. <laughs> I wonder if those um, I wonder if those funder companies are actually funded by pharmaceutical companies because they if they carry on from what you've been portraying and and putting out there, if they they know they're going to get sued, and they know they're going to have to end up paying out a lot a lot of money. <laughs> it's a, it seems like a quick way for them to get 40% of their return back. That's, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so the the website for the donations, I had it up before, is uh, nomoresilenceau.com. So it's this website here. We'll put the link in the, uh, in the description. But you also previously had a uh, page up on mightycause.com. What happened to that one? Why did you have to change yeah, the Mighty Cause, you can still go to it, but um, if you go to click donate, it says not accepting donations. Um, and that came about because um, Stripe, uh, so so it was, initially Mighty Cause was chosen because I'd heard of some of the, the more well-known funding sort of you know, crowdfunding platforms um, uh, having some issues, you know, shutting down fundraising or um, not paying out or something like that. So then I'd heard uh, um, good things about Mighty Cause and that, that that as a company they hadn't done anything like that. So I thought, okay, great. I hadn't thought, of course, of the um, like the payment platform and that was Stripe, um, Stripe payments, and um, there's no other alternative for that. You can't link it to PayPal, so you have to open a Stripe account and then link that to an account and so for reasons of other I didn't get an actual reason it was just other you know you've you've violated or this this account violates the terms of use or something because it's a crowdfunding but mighty cause is a crowdfunding platform so that was the reason you know it's not to be used for crowdfunding um and so we're closing your stripe account uh and anyway I tried to dispute it but they didn't so you know fortunately these days um WordPress and some yeah. fairly simple, um, you know, uh, it didn't take long to put up a website that just allowed it to be hosted online with PayPal. So, so far that's going well. We'll see how long that lasts for, if that doesn't. But, you know, I just think that there was always going to be roadblocks. I, I was surprised that the Mighty Cause went for as long as it did, honestly. I mean, this whole thing, we just see that happening to these kind of causes. But, um, you know, that's just a little blip in the road. If this one gets shut down, people can donate directly to the not-for-profit bank account. Um if that gets shut down, they can donate directly to the solicitor's trust account. So one way or the other, this is happening. Well, they can and knock on your um, door and bring you cash if they have to. They can, yes, they can. We've had people go into the bank and deposit cash into the bank for the into the solicitor's trust account. So oh, wow. this is happening. I don't care what I don't care what they do. And it's yeah. kind of, this is a touch off topic. It's a touch off COVID and all that kind of stuff. But um, the, we've got some new um, censorship legislation coming in, which is the Misinformation Disinformation Act. And obviously, you know, the, with what you're just saying now with your story, um, it seems like we've this has been put in place before it's even become legislation in Australia where companies can turn around and give you basically no reason to shut you down because you don't agree that you don't meet their community standards. I mean, it's pretty vague and, 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 and pretty open-ended, isn't it, if, you, you know, if they're, mm. they're offering a service? So mm. um, 
you know, that's a, that's a, I think that's a note for everybody um, to be wary of, um, you know, all that glitters is gold, you know. <laughs> mm. Well, it's pretty frightening that it seems like the these laws have been deliberately put in place, not so much to punish the individual, which I guess would would infringe on, you know, various human rights, but rather they've put it on the company. So they've so they're putting these obligations on various companies. And so then I just think as soon as that happens, well, as a company, they're just gonna say, Well, sorry, you you know, we don't we don't have the appetite to take on the risk that's associated with you being our customer, whatever that is, whether you know, whether that's you on as a social media or whether you're that's your bank. You know, and that you were seeing that happen already. Yeah. So to go back a step, uh, you know, before you were thrust into all of this, what was your background as a doctor? And I think you worked in pharmacy before as well. Is that right? Yeah, well, um, yeah, so I did work in pharmacy um, years ago. That was sort of out, out of high school, basically. That was my first career. Um, and then, yeah, went back and did postgraduate medicine. And then my my goal, my dream, I guess, always was to be a rural um, general practitioner. So I was really fortunate. I got to work in a lot of rural areas around Australia and we had little kids at that, that age and sort of wanted to do a bit of a lap of Australia, but not really being in a position to just take a year off or something. So kind of did that while studying and got to see um, West Australia and sort of travel around the southwest of West Australia and rural, did rural clinical school there for a while and up to Caratha and then the sunny coast and then kind of made our way up to the Whitsundays, um, which is where I've been for about the last, I think this is 13 years this year. Wow. You'd never leave there, why would you? <laughs> no. <laughs> We're very, very lucky. Yeah. <laughs> very. Can I ask, though, when did you realise something was seriously wrong with the COVID response? I, one of the stories that I find always interesting is what someone's first real hard clue was that this is this is something is really not normal. Mm. Probably... I guess really not normal, I would say, around September, October of 21. So a few things sort of happened around that time. One was that the mandates were coming out, or possibly even August, let's say. Okay, August is probably when I would say. So that was when the... Um, there was a statement made by the College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, combined statement with the College of General Practitioners, um, recommending the COVID vaccine for all women in pregnancy. Um, and, of course, at that time, you know, you don't have to be a doctor to be able to do the simple math that there could not have been a woman on earth who had gone from preconception to delivery of a healthy baby by that date um, because pregnant women were not included in the clinical trials. And so even if someone had fallen pregnant in the post-marketing period, I mean, that was all still, um, you know, that wasn't clinical data. That wasn't data that had come out of a clinical right. trial. And so to make a statement like that I thought was extraordinary. Um, so that was probably my first um the first thing that I thought, what's going on here? And then and then in September was about when um, we were getting word that there would likely be mandates in Queensland and the vaccine probably sort of rolled out here much later. So in terms of adverse events, it was really, say, end of September, October of 21. Mm -hmm. And and then um, the mandates had been rolled out for aged care workers um, and I definitely was starting to see a changed pattern of presentations of patients who were coming in. By that stage, 
um, I wasn't giving the COVID vaccines um, at my practice. I just had a, a conscientious objection to the um, mandate. So I just wasn't um, comfortable being involved in that once it was mandated. Um, so I stopped then. But, of course, people were mandated. They had to have it. They, they were, um, you know, my patients were, of course, having it in, in the area. And, um yeah, so there was just, and I sort of watched it for a couple of weeks and it's like, oh, is, is this coincidence? You know, like this person's had this and, and this person I see's had this and then, you know, you'd hear that my desk is sort of, my, my office was sort of quite close to the front desk and I'd, I'd hear even the phone calls that were coming in and, and I'd hear people that would come in with chest pain and, the, and they're saying call an ambulance and then, or, or they were coming into the clinic with chest pain and um, or calling after, you know, miscarriages and, and then, so then uh, that sort of occurred, a few of those sort of adverse events that seemed a different pattern, but you just think, well, am I just, are my ears just pricking up because um, it's it's a new vaccine? Um, and then by about mid-November, there was one week where we had in our clinic um, three people with di with diagnosed myocarditis, so not diagnosed mm -hmm. from us who had come back from hospital or they'd seen their mm -hmm. specialists. And, and at that stage they were still quoting the numbers as being sort of, you know, perhaps one to ten in a million. And this is a rural area. We, we've only got, I don't know, 15,000 people or something in like sort of the whole surrounding population and, and sort of there's a few clinics here. So, you know, the population that would be amongst my practice would just be a, quite a small fraction of that. So that's just impossible, frankly. And then, yeah. um, and then at that point, so that was sort of about um, mid-November, about the 19th of November, and um, and I... I had spent a few days just doing a bit of an informal practice audit. So there's a way that we can pull up on our clinical software, like just by diagnosis. And I just thought, look, let's, you know, look at, you know, um, DVTs, PEs, strokes, myocarditis, miscarriage. And there was definitely higher numbers as compared to previous years. Like it, it wasn't just that I was mm -hmm. thinking that I'm seeing this and, and they're staying in my mind because I'm thinking about, you know, um, the vaccine or whatever. And so then I went on the, the TGA, DAE and database, which I hadn't looked at in quite a few months. I mean, I had a bit of a look when um, the, you know, the vaccines first came out and and I really hadn't had a look. And anyway, at that point, and this was, yeah, nine, 19th of November, there was, um, there was a reported death in a 14-year-old. And no one had been talking about that. Like there's, there's nothing, there's, that's not on the weekly safety report. There'd been no discussion around that. Um, there was... I don't know, maybe a dozen reports of cardiac arrests in, in people under the age of 18. And, like, the rollout hadn't started in children, so it was only um, 12 to 15-year-olds. And they had only recently been rolled out in that group. And it takes actually two weeks from a report to then go onto the DAEN database. So there's always, like, a two-week delay. So just even to see that many reports, I was just mortified. I thought who's in charge here who's in charge who's watching this like the, the, yeah. clearly this is just clearly there's just so many people reporting and so many people having adverse events somebody isn't putting two and two together that there's actually a problem here and so um that day I wrote a letter to um John Skerritt the head of the TGA and Greg Hunt the health minister and just said this is this is what I've observed. I've lived in this area for more than a decade. I've seen this change of pattern in my own patients. And, you know, have you looked at your, at your database lately? I mean, obviously not like that, but, yeah. you know, that he, here's point, some of the reports. At that point, did you still believe that they wanted to hear what you had to say? Because there's a period of time for a lot of people where they still had faith that the regulators mm -hmm. 
wanted to know <laughs> yeah. uh, what you had to say. Yeah, I did. I mean, when I was um, – it wasn't long after I left WA where there was – this was in about 2011 or 2012, I think, where there was um, – there was a, a sort of a recall, a halting of the childhood flu vaccine program. And it, it happened for, this, for similar reasons, is that there were a few doctors and a few nurses who said, we're seeing more seizures. Like, and, and so over maybe a two or three week period, a few of these reports came in, um, you know, and, and all of that actually became like a, a, a parliamentary uh, inquiry in WA. And there's, there's a fairly comprehensive report that came out of that, the Stokes report, sadly, um, you know, one child uh, had a permanent neurological disability f following a seizure. And so, you know, that whole thing, the whole reporting of adverse events in vaccines was reviewed. And, and I remember as a general practitioner, we all had to, there's always a lot more caution around um, certain brands of, of flu vaccine. And it was, and it was just, there a lot was learned from that, I suppose. And, and yeah, I, I thought, I thought that this has been, it's been chaos because of COVID. <laughs> no one really, um, I think was even able to do their job properly in a lot of ways, like because of there were just so many things that went wrong, I think, in COVID. And I thought, okay, well, this is just another one. Like there's so many reports coming in, no one's watching this, someone's going to take notice. Um, but no, I, I got back a really sort of dismissive letter from, from John Scarrett and I was just like, what is going on here? Um, he basically said, sadly enough, 156 young people die every year. So, you know, die suddenly so you know naturally we're going to see we're going to see adverse events when we roll out a vaccine to a whole population and I just thought that's just not how this works I mean you know I'm just a I'm just a GP like you know we're barely above med students us GPs like I'm not a public health physician I'm not a but again it does not take it, it doesn't take any extraordinary kind of ability to be able to see well that makes no sense if there's if there's 150 young people who might suddenly die in a year well that might be one in every so maybe one in 10,000 people in a year in a young age group might suddenly die and then so that's going to be you know one in 150,000 in any month and then what are the odds that that one in 150,000 has got a vaccine in the two-week period because they only report if there's a temporal relationship. So that means that within a, a reasonable amount of time, and it's usually about two weeks, that that person... So, I mean, what are the odds that someone's going to, for a, a complete, completely due to chance, have... Yeah a rare event like a cardiac arrest and die within two weeks of you know, two weeks after taking the vaccine like that's now you're talking in one in millions uh, maybe in a in a population rollout that could happen perhaps once perhaps twice are you going to see a dozen of those in teenagers um, that's just right. insane yeah. so uh, yeah that was really at the point that I thought well, what's going this is just not right whoever is in charge of this program is not thinking clearly is not you know accurately evaluating the risk benefit and and really for me it all just sort of went downhill from there and that's a terrible feeling isn't it that feeling of realization when you realize wow something is is, is this is not just you know something random and, and news they, they really don't want to know I, I remember I had that feeling when I looked at the test protocols for hydroxychloroquine, uh, an early something that you're supposed to give early with with zinc, they gave late at the wrong dose. They they did six times the normal dose for hydroxychloroquine, and they gave it late. And they said, oh, it doesn't work and it has side effects. Cool. And they did it not just in one test, but in three mm. different. 
you know, it's like, that's not an accident, you know? Mm-hmm. And when I, when you realize, you know, this is, this is not just, you know, a, a whoops or, 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 mm-hmm. or, you know, a little oversight, you know, that's, that's that when it, that's a whole new ball game. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it is. I think it does. It did take a real, and it, I mean, yeah, I guess I'm, I still feel like I'm in the middle of it all really still, yeah. but I think because, I never really think of vaccines in the same way you think of other medications. I don't know. It's like they've always just had a different, uh, just they, they're viewed differently. I think, I think we all view them differently. That's simple as that. And um, whereas, you know, drug companies, we know the games they play. I mean, they're mostly convicted felons. Uh, you know, m- most of the companies have had criminal convictions and the, um, you know, the findings in those criminal cases have been absolutely damning where they found that where they've, the judges have determined that they, you know, deliberately um, advertised and um, misled doctors and misled the public knowing that they were causing harm and in some cases causing deaths simply to improve their profits. So, we know that's how these companies operate. And, and I think, number one, you don't really think of vaccines as coming under that umbrella as being like a, um, I don't know, pharmaceutical product in the same way. Um, but number two, you really just have complete reliance that what stands between that behaviour and the public is the regulator, the therapeutic was regulator. And I think there's just complete, um, you know, faith and confidence that that they're, that, that that's protecting everyone and that the right thing is... Um, there, there was... <laughs> Yeah, I know know Stephen's got a question, but I'm going to sneak in before him. So, do you think? um, Do you think that? um, And this is something I only just recently learned myself: is that um, the TGA is um, being funded um, up to ninety six percent by big pharmaceutical companies. Do you think that your letter to um, to Skerritt and um, his willingness to just you know basically fob you off? is due to the funding that's received by um, big pharmaceutical companies to the TGA? Oh, I don't... I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I mean, it would make it would make sense if your department's being funded by that company. It's. I mean, we know in medicine there's there's a reason why you have to declare conflicts of interest. It doesn't matter how impartial you think you're being. If somebody else is funding the research that you're doing, or the the travel, or the speaking assignment, or whatever it is, there it's human nature that. And especially if you've been involved in that trial, like let's say if if you've been involved in a clinical trial and it's something that you want to go well and it's your baby and you've played a role in putting that together there's an enormous um I guess reluctance to see that that could have done harm you know I think there's just so many things of human nature that says if if someone's funding you to to think and say a certain thing well we know that is human nature that you can do that and yeah it's absolutely a fact that the TGA is funded almost completely by um, pharmaceutical companies and you brought up the convictions we know uh you know a lot of these uh, fines that they receive are dwarfed by uh, the profits that they make. The profits are exceptional compared to the the fines. So they know, even though a product of theirs might be uh, adverse and might be getting adverse reactions from people, then they will have to pay a fine for putting this product out there. The profits that they make as a result of it are so so big that they don't care. They keep going ahead with it. But I just want to take you back. We got into the vaccine rollout. I want to take you a few steps back because obviously there was about a year period between the outbreak of COVID uh, before the vaccine rollout happened. Uh, And you're talking about your spider senses going off when the vaccine rollout did happen. 
What was your reaction during COVID between that period where there were no vaccines at all? Were you seeing an increase in case of people coming in with um, adverse, uh, you know, reactions to COVID? Because we're told we need this vaccine to stop, you know, mm-hmm. people from dying from COVID. We, and then we're seeing, you know, videos of doctors and nurses in hospitals doing dance videos because they're so quiet. What were you seeing at, at this time? Yeah, well, that's really interesting as well, I guess, because in Queensland, we didn't really have any COVID until after the vaccine had rolled out. Mm. So so the vaccine rollout occurred and then, um, you know, purportedly because the borders were closed, we really didn't have cases at all of COVID until, say, like December, you know, really coinciding with the vaccine rollout and, and after it. So before that, we didn't have cases. But, I mean, that year and a half before that was just... Uh, like it was, I think, for anyone working in healthcare and COVID, it was just a nightmare upon upon nightmare. Just so, so many aspects to it, you couldn't even mm-hmm. write them all down. I mean, um, I've never seen I've never seen colleagues, I've never seen doctors as afraid. Like we, I think everyone was genuinely terrified because the first, the very first things that came out, or certainly the first things that were, I guess, shared amongst doctors' groups on social media and and in amongst the groups, were these horrific stories of um, of doctors dying from from COVID, from looking after patients and then dying. So I think there was an enormous amount of fear, and then there was a huge amount of, I guess, on top of that because. Um, into my practice. So then you've got a huge responsibility about what if someone enters your clinic and they have COVID? Well, there were stories down south when that happened and the clinics had to close and do something called a deep clean, whatever on earth that is, and, and that sounded expensive and you had to would have to close your whole clinic for a certain period of time. And some of those clinics were actually like publicly shamed like there was I think there was a case where a doctor had um was reported to have worked when they were unwell and then found out they had COVID and then that was just like you know scandalous that 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 person had maybe put other patients at risk so I guess there were all these other things about protecting um you know your 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 colleagues your workplace like making sure that nobody got COVID and and the rules just changed the rules just changed every day because there were certain groups who had to be swabbed or tested um, if they were once they crossed the border so once the borders were opened and it was just this endless nightmare of keeping up with even for our you know poor reception staff like the questions they had to ask have you traveled here have you traveled here in the past 14 days have you had symptoms because there were just all of these different like quarantine I guess requirements so you couldn't see someone face to face if they were meant to be in um, you know isolating because of where they'd traveled recently or what their symptoms were things like that so so it was um, difficult to make sure that we were providing good care because good care normally means, you know, if someone's unwell, examining them properly and um, and for a while there that was just impossible. Everyone was doing telehealth, teleconference, you know, um, phone consults, which is just not, it's just not the ideal standard of care and things get missed and, and then we'd have um, patients come in. I mean, the hospital, of course, was having just as difficult a time, um, but, you know, I'd, I'd see people once the borders open and once the heaps once people were coming coming through sort of over that Christmas period that the borders opened, um, I saw a lot of sick people and um, and uh, and I'd be like, oh, and they'd gone to the hospital the day before or something. And, of course, because the hospitals were swamped with having to do these mandatory swabs, so you had to, so there had to be swabs done if you'd crossed a border. And so there was all of this sort of healthcare resources and time in terms of, okay, these people will need these swabs. But, of course, if they were sick, you know, yeah, so they'd come in and 
they clearly had, you know, like tonsillitis or pneumonia or something like that. And I was like, oh, did, did they look in? Did they look in your throat? Were your tonsils like this yesterday? Oh no, they just stood back and and did did a swab. So I just think, in so many ways, medical care was just interfered with, and um, so I guess it was all of that that was the lead up to the vaccine program. So at first, when they sort of announced the vaccine, say early 21, it was like, oh, thank goodness, you know, great, we'll, we'll all get a vaccine and we can all just get on with this. And um, yeah, it was, it was, that was, I guess, my feeling coming into it. I actually applied to be one of the, um, you know, big uh, vaccine rollout centres, I guess, because our clinic's one of the bigger ones in the area and we've got a generator and, and um, yeah, I thought I was kind of offended when I didn't get picked. And now I'm like, oh, I'm so glad that I, mm-hmm. I didn't play a bigger role in that because it ended up just being terrible. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, at first that was my feeling, you know, coming into it all. It's like just like yeah. another flu vaccine, I guess, yeah. I just want to play a clip because you spoke at an event that uh, the United Australia Party put on in Sydney with Dr Peter McCullough. I just want to play a quick clip of you speaking at that event. In complicating the issues was that even doctors who had themselves had severe adverse events often remained of the belief that they should not discuss their often life-changing events with others and that they should continue to encourage vaccination. And so these doctors and other health professionals suffered in silence, unable to even discuss with their own colleagues for fear of ridicule or reprimand. So you're speaking in that clip about doctors even getting adverse reactions from these vaccines and and being too afraid to speak out about it. Were you shocked at the reactions from your colleagues, uh, one, in getting vaccinated themselves and maybe having some adverse reactions, but two, also seeing the adverse reactions in patients and not making a big deal about it? Gaslighting. Mm. Yeah, I mean... um... Yeah, I I was. I probably heard more. So I guess it was really since after starting the class action that I that I then um, came to speak to a lot more doctors and healthcare workers who'd had adverse reactions because they were contacting me once they once they'd either watched that talk or heard about it or heard about the class action. And yeah, it was it was surprising and I guess shocking and just awful really that so many of them they were sort of like they were happy to have someone to talk to. They were so grateful that, that they could talk to a colleague about it. And this is, of course, the same for everyone, whether they're a health professional or not a health professional, but but the health professionals were just so wary of APRA. And when you just think logically, well, how could you be criticised for saying something? You've had a reaction yourself. Like you're just, you know, that's not an anti-vaccine statement, surely. But um yeah, they were, they were just really petrified because I guess if you think about it, um, probably most people in that situation might be thinking, all right, well, once I recover, once I get past this, I want to go back to work. I don't want to have some, you know, complaint from APRA about this whole scenario added to it. So, um, so that did surprise me how many people with an injury, um, yeah, if they were in the health profession, did not want to talk about it, did not want to speak publicly about it and were very cautious about the whole situation and what they were saying. And um, whereas I just think, oh, I want blood. <laughs> but, no, the, the fear of APRA is uh, very, very real. Um, and I guess then, of course, what I've heard is so many stories from from patients about how they were treated by the health profession. And I think that is... Um, it will just go down as a really shameful, a really shameful chapter in the history of medicine is the, the way Absolutely. that so many people have been treated. 
Um, you just mentioned um, AFRA just then. Um, so AFRA is, despite what people believe, it's a private entity. It's not a government-run agency. Um, are they funded off just offhand? I don't know if you know or not, but you've done a lot of research. Are they are they funded or linked to big pharmaceutical companies? Are they are they getting a? Do you know if they're getting um, paid off by pharmaceutical companies? Um, I believe someone has asked this question to APRA and the APRA have publicly responded to say they're funded through the fees from health practitioners. Um, so, yeah, that's, but that's what I've read. And how have, how have APRA um, dealt with you? Have you been deregistered or anything like that? Uh, no, I've not been deregistered. I'm still working. Um, I've... Uh, I won't go into too much details about it, but I've, I've will have the opportunity to um, to to meet with them. Um, the, so yes, so, so they haven't taken any sort of suspension action against me. Uh, it seems like um, they it, that I may need to do it. it program and um, perhaps be public, perhaps be cautioned, um, which all of which I think is uh, absolutely fine because it will result in me having another opportunity to, I guess, raise these important issues with the board. So I actually wrote to the board uh, 18 months ago and, um, and, and pretty much everything that, I, that I've said was was in that letter and outlined a lot of my concerns and asked to meet with them. Um, I was told that that letter was read by the board and I got a polite response. Um, so I guess I'm just seeing this, you know, complaint issue, whatever you call it, as an opportunity to just, again, raise with the board these serious issues. I mean, I just think logically if they if they are taking this action against practitioners who are talking about safety issues and, and suggesting that, um, you know, potentially they need... Um, you know, further education on the risks and benefits of the vaccines, well, then then I, I would imagine that, that they themselves are, um, are not aware of the benefits and risks of the vaccines. And I can see how that could easily happen because, um, you know, we've mostly just been told how safe and effective they are and there's not really been much discussion outside of that. So, um, yeah, I see that as an opportunity to raise some of my own experiences and to present some of that to the board. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> Uh, I'd like to think that things would come will come around and we'll see trust for medical regulators and, frankly, many doctors again. I mean, what we've been through has really been a masterclass in, in fear and propaganda and coercion of a sort that I would love never to see again in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I, I wonder, I don't know, I, I, I'd like to think, I'd be curious to think, you know, what, what is the past ask you what the path forward do you think is to regain trust and do you think we're going to get there or do do you think there'll have to be another parallel medical system while the other one bathes in its own ignominy i think it will depend how this sort of next phase a chapter i guess is handled so i think now that there is just such an overwhelming amount of evidence coming out in like the pub as the published clinical literature, in the Senate, in, um, you know, publicly, I guess these organisations may, you know, sort of double down. Um, What I hope happens is that once... um, I hope that at some point there'll just be, you know, an apology. I I think that's the only way forward to regain any sort of trust is that there's... I think there's just an a lot of um yeah recompense and apology I guess to the public for everything that's happened and I think I don't see how it I don't see how trust is regained without that happening 
Well, honesty, honesty is going to go a long way. Now, the Department of Health in Western Australia recently released an annual report, and uh, Dr. John um, Campbell, I think his name is, uh, he, he's got a big YouTube channel uh, over in the UK. Yes. He's covered this, but also a friend of mine, uh, Paul, you may know also, um, Darren Trengrove, sent me some data, and it's actually he sent me the report as well, and it's got this graph here. And this is the summary of uh, adverse uh, reactions uh, after after immunisation. This covers the period from 2017 to 2021. And you can see right here from March 2021, the spike in the amount of adverse reactions that were only reported. Now, these were the only ones that were reported in this period. So it could be, it could be even more than this. But uh, in a summary that Darren has sent to me, uh, he's um, he's gone through this report, and um, even Dr. Campbell in his uh, YouTube video on this said it's actually a very honest report. So thank you to the Western Australian Department of Health for putting this report out there. But some of the um, some of the findings he's got was that there was a 178% increase in all vaccines provided in 2021. So obviously there's more vaccines in the system. So people could argue that, okay, there's more adverse reactions because there's more vaccines being administered. So there was a 3,873% increase or a 38% higher adverse events following immunisation um, during this period. So 38 times higher. Uh, there were 270 adverse events following immunisation in 2020. That increased to 10,726 in 2021. 97% of those were from COVID uh, vaccination. Uh, there were 3,948,673 COVID vaccines given in 2021, starting in March. So if you do the do the calculation so from those almost 4 million vaccines divided by the over 10,000 adverse reactions you get uh, you get a reaction in one in every 378.6 people wow that's 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 why isn't this front page news in every in every newspaper around the country mm. i'm surprised that report didn't get more attention actually i mean yeah yeah. So well, does, this, does, this line up, does this line up with what you were seeing? Yeah, I mean, it's nothing like, it's nothing like the other vaccines. Um, you know, and, and I think this idea that, oh, well, everybody had it. Well, the fact is every, you know, two-month-old, four-month-old, six-month-old, 12, 18, four-year-old, um, teenagers and, you know, the majority, uh, uh, like at least a majority of people having a flu vaccine every year. So, most people are having vaccines um, and we don't see that. So it was a clear pattern that something was um, very different. So, you, there, I mean, there's obviously a lot of data around, so you can make these comparisons. There's been no sort of, you know, parallel over the history of, you know, vaccinations and, and medicines to show such a big spike of, um, what do you call it, adverse reactions and death. Um it's funny that um, at a sentence estimates once that um, Dr. Hewitt, and I believe he's on the Pfizer board or something like that. So Dr. Hewitt, his name was, he was at the recent, he was at the recent um, Senate inquiry that has just been aired by all the senators. 
But then I, I grabbed, I found a grab, when I was doing a little bit of research, I found a grab that um, he made a claim in Senate estimates, and I believe it was with um, Senator Malcolm Roberts, that um, 10 times more, uh, 10 times the amount of people have had died from paracetamol than adverse reactions to um, the COVID injection. So, I, I, you know, what's your comments on that? I know that you've got a pretty strong thought on this. <laughs> yeah, well, that was that was um, John Skerritt made that uh, comment, uh, he, and he also made that com- comment um, publicly. So that he also made that on a two GB or one of the radio stations. Um, yeah, both of those comments basically are, are within our statement of claim, just as the allegation that they were, you know, sort of false and misleading statements. So, um, you know, because at the time that he made those statements, we have the the ability to look at the DAE in database and the number of adverse events. And I mean, I, I, so we pulled that report and for the past, you know, sort of more than 50 years of every one of the 30 plus paracetamol containing products, I mean, within the, within the nine months that the COVID vaccines had been in use at that time, it was far more. It was it was many times more than, than all of those that have been reported from paracetamol. So I, I'm not sure how he might justify that statement, whether that statement was being justified on the basis of the 14, that, that only sort of 12 deaths at that stage had been accepted by the TGA. Perhaps he was using that as the as the number of COVID vaccine-related deaths rather than reports to the database. I'm, I'm not sure. I can't see how any sane, rational person could make that, you know, calculation. So Well, they just had this attitude of, you know, let's, don't worry about testing it. Just get it out there. Just push it out there. And you've you've sent me this clip that, um, or it's not a clip, it's a whole twenty seven minute video that you've put up on your Rumble page. Uh, so and we're going to put that link in the, into our into our yes, notes. I suggest every everyone, oh, everyone should watch it. Yeah. Obviously, your class action is a 650-page document. It's very yeah, detailed. That's what I was trying to summarise it. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, we're not going to be able to cover all of that in this in this interview, but I suggest everyone go, goes and watches this video that you put up on Rumble, but I just want to play this clip now. In the vaccine is below the threshold uh, that internationally is assessed for genotoxicity and carcinogenicity. I mean... These lipids are commonly used in a range of other human therapeutics, and even at higher levels, there isn't uh, evidence of genetic. And, and they are distributed uh, through a range of parts of the body, as are lipids that you have if you have a sausage or a steak yes. for breakfast. Yep. Uh, and uh, the lipids are hydrolyzed, destroyed by the body uh, fairly rapidly, as are dietary lipids. And, and, and this is my point, is why hasn't this research been done prior to the uh, Well, Senator, if you'd wanted yep. a couple of million people in Australia potentially hospitalised and killed from COVID, uh, you could have had that because this research takes a couple of years to, to do. Well, so well I been, that. Uh, Sorry, if I can finish my answer, Senator. Uh, in order to understand these things, it would have been another year or two or three until these vaccines would have been released. So basically saying, oh, the research can be damned, just get the vaccine out there and, and push it on the public because COVID's going to kill more people than the vaccine, supposedly. Mm. 
Yeah, I feel like that was the attitude, like looking back now um, and having done a lot of research, obviously, as part of the, um, you know, working with a legal team, I just think that's been exactly the attitude. Like there's a um, the clinical evaluation report for the AstraZeneca has a sentence in it. It's like the this is available on Freedom of Information documents and it's it sort of makes an overall comment so that the evaluator makes an overall comment on the benefit risk, um, you know, evaluation, I guess, of the vaccine. And, and the sentence was something like um, that vaccines uh, vaccines can have a sort of less favourable benefit risk balance because they they have such a high potential to do good and to protect so many lives something along those lines. Um, when in actual fact, if you if you review any of the well-established scientific literature on the evaluation of vaccines, it's the opposite. It's always, you know, the statements in all of that literature is that there is a requirement for a far higher, um, a more favourable benefit-risk ratio because the vaccines are going to be given to healthy people to protect them from a disease of which they may or may not ever come into contact with and that they can, in many countries, be the subject of mandates. So it's like they were working from an opposite frame of mind where um, as to what we would, to how we would usually consider a vaccine. So one of the things that, you know, that, that even calling it a vaccine when it's a novel technology in terms of at least using it as a vaccine, uh, a new, new antigen, the spike protein, which, you know, we, we were told wasn't by itself toxic. And, and, and that's one of the conspiracy theories that have turned out to be true. The, the, you know, that we were People were censored for saying there was a lab leak. People were censored for saying that the spike protein in itself was toxic. Uh, then there's the the idea that the lipid nanoparticle, the mRNA, would break down within hours. Uh, and 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 then you know the biodistribution study was was censored. Uh, all down the line, the, the the number of things that good doctors were censored for saying that have turned out to be clearly true, and more. Um, you know, the, the stabilized uh, uridine to, to make sure that the, you know, that, that one, it, from what I understand, the body has the ability to generate spike proteins for a good long time after injection. Uh, and, and, and it does biodistribute throughout the body in, into ovaries and liver and, and, and create spike proteins, proteins on, on site. And the, 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 the degree to which they just passed all that by and and just forced it on people. I'd love some comments on that because I still can hardly wrap my head around it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've, I think I've ever seen a situation where the people saying something that um, was said to be conspiracy and then has been 100% factual, um, it's been extraordinary. Like, there's been so many examples of that. Um, yeah, but I agree. I mean, I guess I call it a vaccine because that's, uh, I don't know. It's what it's called. In, that's what everyone calls it. But you're absolutely right. It's a gene, it's a gene therapy product. It's it is a yeah. product. It's not. Um, it's certainly in no way even similar, really, to uh, other than its intended use of preventing uh, infectious disease. That's really the only similarity that it has with any of the established vaccines in in every way. It's um, it's completely novel. I mean, just down to the simplest fact of how it works, using our own body's machinery to make the spike protein. And, um, you know, just even that. And I think 
yeah, I think until I really started looking into it, I I don't think I even fully registered because a lot of vaccines, like for example the um, the AstraZeneca vaccine, it's it has DNA in an adenovirus, and I mean lots of vaccines, I guess, are kind of made in that way. Like you take one virus and they splice DNA from another virus into it. So I hadn't really registered initially just how differently these products were working, that they were using our body's machinery not just to mount an immune response but to, in the first instance, create the antigen. I mean, that's just completely novel. And if it's distributing throughout the whole body, how do we know which organs of the body are producing that antigen and then the immune system potentially might direct an immune response against those organs? Um, yeah, it's just insane. In your in the short video that you sent um, today, I was looking at it, and you know you you're an amazing number cruncher because I've tried to look at you know DAN and VAERS and all that stuff, and I you know what like honestly, I I don't know I I can't get it to work. I can't get it's any information out of it. Yeah, it's just horrible, right? It's just like it's just like when you try to get something from Centrelink or try to get anything <laughs> government kind of operated it, make it. 20 times harder to do than it needs to be. You know, I just want to type in how many people died from COVID and it should just come up, this is how they died, you know, and then how much, um, uh, how many people died last year compared to this year and, and you know, you find, and you know, just that's all it should be. I think it should, it's very bad. But um, there was something interesting. So, you know, there's been a lot of, let's say, conspiracy theory about, you know, um, fertility rates in women and we know that they didn't, there was a test that was done in, in rats that was expunged from um, the reporting system. Um, that also came out, I believe, in the um, in Senate inquiry um, last night, but it wasn't something that I haven't heard of before. So I've heard about it before. Um, so it said that, uh, and you're, you, you, you datarized it very well, so it was like animal studies showed that there was a 9.8% increase in pre-implantation loss rate in vaccinated rats compared to um, non-vaccinated rats. Um, that's a scary number because basically you sum it up as it doubled, like basically miscarriage rate. Um, do you feel or have you seen in the data, because you, you obviously can use the systems, um, is, that, is that information starting to correspond or correlate with, um, the, with human, um, um, what do you call it, human miscarriages and stuff like that as well? Um, well, there's quite a number of reports to the DAN database of miscarriages, stillbirths and um, congenital abnormalities and defects. I mean, of course, they're just reports to the DAN. Uh, unfortunately, the pregnancy, so the, the pregnancy trial in humans, the results of that were to be released, I thought it was earlier this year, it still has not been released. So we don't actually have the clinical data for the kind of what they call like the safety subset of use in women. Um, and, I mean, yeah, the, the animal, I mean, my personal opinion is that the animal study data in and of itself should have been enough that it shouldn't have had the category that it was given. So the category being one means there's no, um, there's been no abnormalities in animals. And I guess that also forms part of our claim and that'll be for the, you know, the judge and the experts to decide. But, but I think that there shouldn't have been a B1 because, yeah, so that study... Um, that you referenced, so it was 9.8% of um, rats given the Pfizer vaccine had a pre-implantation loss, so sort of a, the animal equivalent of a miscarriage, and um, 4.1 in the in the control. So it was a doubling, and um, well, more than a doubling. 
and they just justified it by saying that it's within the historical range. So they give a historical range to say that rats may have, rats may miscarry anywhere between, I think it was maybe 3.9 and, and 9%. So it was a fairly, um, or perhaps 11% or something. So it was a fairly large range and the range included the, the rate in placebo rats and the rate in, but you don't do studies like that you, do, you you can you can comment if something's within within an expected range but it, but a doubling from your intervention is a doubling from your intervention and the other thing is that in fact in animal studies you're not meant to reference what they call a control um you know use a uh, control data as it's as any form of reference unless you've got information on that control so that means that whatever data that you're using to control with that those rats were the same breed, stored at the same temperature, given the same amount of food, that their um, animal like husbandry and hygiene and everything was all being done in the same way. And of course, you go to the um, Freedom of Information documents for that um, for that study, and it says that the uh, that the study was not subject to, or the control data was not subject to quality control. So it was not a a properly quality controlled control data that they were using so to justify it to say that it met you know historical controls when that was not a quality controlled control I mean that just seems uh, unacceptable in my view well to me it just seems like we talk about you know women and pregnancy and children they're the next generation they're the future of our of, of our world our civilization of our race our species whatever okay you think that um, having any sort of data like that should have pulled it from the start because mm. it should, you know, why, why would, so we know that there was, um, there, there, there was uh, shedding as well with, um, the, with, the, with, the, with the shot, yeah. okay? So you wouldn't want to give it to men, okay, and then where they could be in, a, in an environment where they could shed it to women, that would affect reproduction in any way. So if you if, if the test was flawed or failed or or wasn't quite under the right controls, it should have been it should have been stopped from the start. Like that's that's it. No more injections. Done. Finished. Shouldn't have been been put into anybody's arm until they had at least had a decent control group. And then, as you were saying as well, you've got a control group of they had four point one percent miscarriage rate, and then um, you had and don't forget too, rats breed a lot quicker than. Than, um, than humans do as well, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like they have litters of many all the time. So quality of like, you know, egg and maybe um, sperm might, might not be as good as, say, human. And because we hold, we gestate one or two babies, you know, for nine months and it's a it's a big process for us. So, um, yeah, I just don't understand how they can... I don't understand how they can get away with any of this, these these things, and that that's a very scary uh, scary piece of data for me. I've got friends, and, uh, and my family uh, in my personal life, um, I've, my wife has had a few miscarriages um, pre-COVID, pre-vaccinations, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we've that's it's a terrible thing to go through. But if you're taking something that is going to actually increase your risk of that then, you know, there's a lot of other things that will elevate from that, which is mental health, relationship breakdown, domestic violence, all those kind of things will roll into it. Does that get, does that get counted as, you know, that's, to be honest with you, that's an adverse reaction to the, to the vaccine. Mm. 
Oh, I think, I mean, yeah, I guess in terms of how our, um, what our claim is, it's, it is for non-economic loss and um, losses subsequent to the injury itself. And you're, you're right, miscarriage is not a small thing. Like that is a big thing for someone to go through. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's confusing that when a medication that was still in a clinical trial, so at the time that it was released to the public, it was still within clinical trial, it's confusing that it was approved for groups of people who were not who were excluded from the trials. So not only were pregnant women excluded from the trials, but all of the trials, they were advised to, they had to use contraception. Both male and female had to use contraception throughout the trial yep. period. Exactly. And AstraZeneca, it seemed like initially in their clinical evaluation report, um, there was even a comment in there about, um, you know, that they make a comment in that report about the potential for shedding. Um, they make comments about the lack of um, data in pregnant women. And they even make the comment that considering that it is um, that there is the risk of um, genome uh, genetic integration being a DNA. They do actually acknowledge mm. that in the AstraZeneca wow. documents. Yeah. Um, they say that there may even be, it may even be prudent to be cautious in um, women of childbearing potential. So it seemed like there was some caution to begin with, but then, you know, eight months later, we're advising this for all women at all stages of pregnancy. Um, and you know, just to compare that to say thalidomide, like this is this oh. is the this is the re this is the reason that that normally um, we have to be so cautious of use in pregnancy is that it actually took a long time to discover that thalidomide was causing uh, those malformations. And one of the reasons is is that um, drugs often will only cause an event at, during a certain part of the pregnancy. Oh, wow. And so for thalidomide, it was between day 16 and day 35 or something. So if you wow. took it outside of that window, your pregnancy was fine. So then it would take a long time. If you're just watching the public, you'd be like, oh, well, that person had thalidomide, their baby's perfect fine this one happens to have a, a malformation and so that's why data has to be so carefully collected in a trial for pregnant women where it's looking at rates um, specifically in each part of the pregnancy like that's how a pregnancy trial should and um, of course none of that's been done um, and, you know, thalidomide never, was never actually approved in the US and it was because uh, one person who I think was later, she was later, um, I don't know, awarded or something because she was the person who stopped it from being uh, ever released into the US and it was because of the early clinical and animal data that came across her desk and she said this, this doesn't meet the, you know, this doesn't seem safe to approve and it was never approved and so you just think, yeah, that's how it should happen. <laughs> Well, this is why we yeah. test on animals. I mean, I know we got the greenies and things like that complaining about testing on animals and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you know, we 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 taking these medications, you know, for the benefit of the human civilization, or supposedly, and um, basically they've thrown caution to the wind with this kind of thing. And it seems that we're not learning from our mistakes. What what is the, what, I don't understand why humanity and the medical profession and um, our regulators mainly aren't learning from. From history, have they well, learned their books? I think that's a, a very kind way to way to put it. Uh, you know, given the number of rules that have just been completely set aside for this one unique product, uh, you know, Dr. Phil Baltman talks about how you know he was a a, a consultant for uh, bringing drugs to market for decades, and you know he watched as all the rules that had been followed have had been set aside, particularly for this. For, for this 
event. Uh, and uh, so the, the idea that it's not just not learning from our mistakes, I think, is kind. You know, to, to think it's just dumb is kind, whereas I can't get around that it seems to be malfeasance or at least mm -hmm. willful blindness. You know, the, the pregnant women, my understanding, Dr. McCann, is that they're extremely careful, uh, exceptionally careful with what they approve for pregnant women because of all those things that you mentioned. And that was entirely set aside, uh, mm -hmm. uh, as well as, you know, it being a gene therapy and it didn't go through the gene therapy trials. It went through the vaccine trials, which are a lot easier. Uh, the mandates, all these things were exceptional. And mm -hmm. And, and worldwide, and I can't, you know, and everyone sort of failed in the same direction at the same time. And that's what makes it seem a bit, uh, uh, yeah, uh, a bit more than just uh, not. Sorry, Paul. And just on that too, about how the medical profession and people are very careful and sensitive around women. I mean, let's face it: if you, um, uh, uh, if you're, a, if you're first-time parents and you get one of those books, you know. No soft cheeses, no soft serve ice cream. Make sure you, when you go to a restaurant, you order the food that's fresh. It hasn't been sitting in the Bay of Marie for twenty minutes. You know all these. You know, no cold meats. You know, don't go, don't go to your delicatessen and grab and grab a, a bit of salami because that'll 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 terminate the baby. Um, you know, so there's all these things. You know, these anecdotal things that we talk about. Yet all of a sudden, they're allowing. Um, a, a, a gene-based therapy that alters your DNA and genome um, that has no real, it's a, it's a novel, as we've talked about, it's novel medication and all that kind of stuff. And they just, hey, just roll up your arm. I had I had, a do I had doctors from our medical centre walking through the local IGA saying to the customers of the IGA, we've got a few doses spare, come and get your shot now. Wow. That's what I had. That's what I had. At, at, down wow. in my area where I am, you know, and I can't, I just can't believe it. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off there, um, Dr. McCann, but, um, you know, I, I, I just can't believe it with the, the sensitivity of and how important it is to have children and, and healthy. And we've already got issues with, you know, exponential amounts of like ADHD and, and all these, you know, spectrum um, illnesses and, and, and diagnoses. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, um, let's say, suspicion on, the, the, on vaccines anyway of maybe having a, an inherent cause to some of these um, conditions. And then all of a sudden they come with a brand new one that's six months made within six months and injecting people in pregnant women's arms and they expect no, no, no consequence to this. Mm. And I think also man, like pregnant women were not exempted from mandates. I mean, that's just, that is just an utter horror and, yes. You know, you can imagine a lot of, yeah, a lot of women were in that position of having to leave their job, leave their career, um, or have a vaccine whilst they were pregnant. Well, you had a very, very yeah, good quote. I'll just bring it up. This is this was from a speech again that we brought up before where you spoke at the uh, Dr. McCullough event. This was a, 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 a quote that you said in relation to to mandates. I just want to play it because it's pretty it's pretty pr profound. And of course, mandates in this or any environment were and are a catastrophe of medical ethics that deserves a talk all of its own. Yeah, I think that was, a, that was an excellent line that you've used there, and it's so true, but to, uh, to keep things moving on your journey, uh, we've talked about the COVID period, we've talked about the vaccine rollout period, uh, 
when did you start to get in your mind, we need a class action lawsuit? How did that start to develop? Um, it was so early of 22. So I'd written that first letter end of tw- November 21 to John Scarra. I'd received that response. Um, I'd actually put a cop- uh, that letter out onto a big group, a closed Facebook group of um about 9,000 GPs and and just put it out there and expecting to be slammed and and I was but but I just thought it's this is such an important are other people seeing this you know does anyone else want to sign this letter um you know and they didn't so I signed that one on my own but but what happened from that is a lot of people contacted me privately and said actually I am seeing it I'm afraid of saying anything publicly and so then I started to make a lot more connections with a lot more um, doctors who were seeing adverse events so I guess that just reinforced for me that okay there is a lot more harm that's going on here even just beyond what I'm observing or you know what's being reported and and so I guess through all of that I became aware of just more and more harm more and more people who had had adverse events but then um in between that I wrote um oh I've been writing a lot of letters I'm not normally a letter writer anyway so you know in between I'd written to like um oh the attorney general and the human rights commissioner and the privacy commissioners I mean I just saw so many issues with you know from the human rights and privacy violations of having to hand over your you know your personal medical information and things like that but um and then a couple of months later I wrote another letter then back to John Scarra and um Greg Hunt, and, and this time from these um, various doctors that had contacted me and, you know, we'd started been discussing, 15 actually were willing to sign with me and they were from a number of specialties like emergency physicians and who'd been seeing a lot of this in the emergency departments. And anyway, so I wrote another letter. Um, that was, I think, March of 22. And, um, and this time covered a lot more of that s- scientific evidence because at that stage some of the freedom of information documents had come up so and I've been doing a lot more reading so I had a better understanding at that point it wasn't just well I've seen this suddenly happening after the vaccine and and this is what's on your database and now it's like wait a minute this was the scientific information that you had in front of you when you did this evaluation like what's going on um and yeah that was that was signed by a, a bunch of other doctors and I thought okay definitely this time it's not just one you know little GP shooting off a letter now it's you know a group of specialist doctors um, raising these safety issues pretty much just got the same response like there there are no safety signals in young people there are no and at that stage you know there were just even more reports that had gone through onto the database and and of course at that time I'm seeing more patients as well because that um people were having more people were having the vaccine up to the mandates which was the december the 19th in queensland so then sort of january february period a lot more people coming in with adverse events and i think at that point i was just realized i don't know it just i can't i formed the opinion that it didn't matter how many doctors were going to raise this issue um that that legal action would be the only way that these people were going to get any form of um, justice or compensation or that anyone was even going to listen to what was happening. Um, so, yeah, that was what made me decide that this was a good idea. And um, and so then I, yeah, as I mentioned, I approached a few different lawyers and um, barristers and eventually, um, eventually a, a barrister to give an opinion, so to sort of, you know, make a, a comment, I guess, on the arguability of it, um, and then it sort of rolled from there. 
Thank you again for your courage. Uh, you know, you, you've you've had a real journey here, and you know, you you putting your your name on that letter at first, all alone, uh, and everything that's come for that. I, I I just do want you to know I am truly grateful. Thank you. And I was just just quickly. I know you got to go soon because um, we're getting past the hour and fifteen minute mark. But um, what kind? Just for the people who are willfully blind, people who are a bit still in denial. You know what I mean? Um, what were the kind of what were some of the ad, what were the, some of the common adverse reactions that you saw? Because, you know, unvaccinated people or some some people, me being one, I can turn around and go when somebody turned around to me now and goes, oh, you know, I had this happen to me, and I'm like, well, are you vaccinated? And then he'd go, he or she would go, yeah. You could say, well, it's probably that, right? And because there's because we don't know if it's not. You, I've got to be honest with you because no testing was really done. But what were some of the main ones, like what were some of the really common ones, apart from like myocarditis and things like that that everyone are talking about now, um, you know, like um, apparently there was like blindness. Apparently there was like, uh, you, you know, what were the other ones, you know, that, that you happened to come across that were, you know, kind of like, well, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. I think that's the problem. How do we know what is related to the vaccine and what isn't? If you just go by, for example, one of my Freedom of Information um, requests to the TGA, uh, was it was I was just wanted the um, periodic safety update report, which is when that's meant to be summarised, and and that's just a normal part of the um, of what should be on the product information. So the product information always has to state all of the adverse events that happened within the clinical trial, and then it has to some. This is you know. A, re- a legal regulation that they operate under. And then there has to be a table that summarises the post-marketing surveillance. So it's meant to be done in a meaningful way, in a simplified way, so that doctors can read that and can, you know, explain it to patients and say, okay, well, in the post-marketing period, you know, here are some of the significant serious things that have been reported, um, blah, blah, blah. So that's what's meant to be on the... So I think there's good reason that they couldn't do that in this case because when they finally um, released that document to me, it was 170 pages that just lists every different adverse event. So it, it was every different adverse event listed with the number of reports next to it and it took 170 pages to list them all. And the problem with trying to even interpret that data is that instead of it being like strokes this many or, um, you know, vascular occlusions this many, like it, it was, you know, you read through that document and it's almost every single vein in the body has got, you know, basilar artery stroke, um, femoral artery occlusion. Like So it's just been listed in that way. So it's really difficult to then meaningfully draw that together which is what's meant to be done like that's what's meant to be summarized for um, doctors and for patients to be able to say okay well this is what's been seen afterwards and that's how we know this is what we need to be looking out for and um and this is what we need to be reporting so um yeah, so, I mean, all of those things that you mentioned I have seen and or had people report directly to me. So absolutely um, strokes, blindness, yes, um, deafness, um, a condition called transverse myelitis, which is where the, we, we know that happens after vaccines and, um, you know, people have um, been required lengthy rehab or they've been wheelchair-bound for a prolonged period. Um, and unfortunately, of course, I've had a lot of people contact me who, had their family member but pass away unexpectedly soon after the vaccine so I, I just think um 
personally, I think it's not sensible to rule anything out. And that's why it is supposed to be the case that anything that happens soon after the vaccine is meant to be reported. And I guess in a normal situation, there wouldn't be this astronomical number of reports. And so they could be, you know, individually evaluated and like, for example, the TGA is one of their requirements, and this, this predates COVID. Um, they had a group called the Vaccine, uh, the VSIG, the Vaccine Safety Investigation Group, I think it's called. Yeah. Um, and so there's, again, that we obtained that under Freedom of Information. Their working group document is there, and it states that VSIG is to be convened for every um, what they call a cluster, which means more than two or more of the same event or a single event if it's, like, um, serious or unexpected enough and that in every one of those cases where the event is considered serious, so like a serious, unexpected, certainly all deaths, medically significant events, I mean, if you run through and pick out just by diagnosis every event on the uh, TGA database that would fit into that category, it's like over 15,000 events. So that's 15,000 times that VSIG should have been called to, and because VSIG is actually an independent body, and in fact, in that document, it states that when VSIG is convened to review a case, um, that the TGA is not allowed to be present in the room when the causality assessment yeah. is done. And that's being done in a way to make sure that it's completely independent of, as you mentioned earlier, you know, any of those outside or, or even the perception of an outside influence that might impact on the VSIG evaluation of causality. And it just simply hasn't been convened. So, um, you know, you go to the TGA database where it says um, just even when they're the ACV, which is the Committee for Vaccines, not even VSIG, goes a preliminary um, committee to that, almost every month so they put out a, a monthly report. Almost every month it says the ACV was not asked to review any safety issue. When you would think that there's quite a high number of safety issues that need some serious reviewing here. So, um, you know, it's just really... <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, you know, we're up to 130,000 adverse events. So it's it's extraordinary that those that those bodies that are meant to have been, you know, why haven't they been convened? Why was the ACV, oh, I don't know the answer to any of these, why wasn't the ACV asked to review some these, you know, astonishing number of adverse events and why was VSIG not called for all of those serious events and deaths? That's I why we need to find out the answer to that. Yeah, that's why we need a royal commission, I think, an independent royal commission to just get, get through to the bottom of all this. And it's going to be years and years of of just back and forth, I think. The excess death chart, that was one of the things I was going to uh, ask you about, Dr. McCann, because uh, mm. there, there's the immediate consequences after vaccination in the, the weeks and maybe month following. But there's also a number of effects that have been postulated, and we I think we understand mechanisms for, for a number of them as to why the excess death chart has gone up uh, uh, in, 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 in the number of standard deviations you wouldn't even see unless there was a war. Um, mm. And the fact that this isn't discussed is also a, a real uh, check on the media, uh, the degree of cover-up we've had. Um, but in terms of the, the mechanisms for long-term uh, deaths, um, you know, things along the lines of uh, cancers, and, and I've heard some postulated reasons for why uh, the, the higher rates of cancers, um, perhaps the fibrin blood clots uh, and, uh, and, and, and other issues along those lines. Is that something that you follow much at all, uh, or is that you kind of leave it to the statisticians? 
No, I definitely follow that. I mean, I wrote to the actuaries who and, and asked if I could meet with them as well um, because I think there's some important information that they should also be aware of in terms of evaluating these deaths. So the actuaries is like obviously your independent sort of statistical body and they've they've put out some reports on um, these excess deaths and basically they don't know, like they're not even able to provide any real explanation for it. And this, we're up to like 17,000 excess deaths. That is just astronomical. And to not have an explanation for that, and they, they, they make a comment on um, whether it could be related to the vaccine and they say the likelihood or the impact is, you know, extremely low or very unlikely or something like that. But, but how they justify that is they say out of all of the vaccines there's only been 14 deaths considered, you know, causal from the TGA. Um, and, you know, the TGA, John Skerritt, has been questioned on this matter also in Senate and he has stated in Senate, oh, well, the actuaries are a fantastic body and they have determined that it's not related to the vaccine. It's like what sort of circular logic checkmate yeah. nightmare must this be for families who have, like, would be just screaming that my healthy, you know, my healthy son or daughter or parent was completely well, had the vaccine and died soon after. And I've had a tragic number of people who've described exactly that to me. And, and there are a number of mechanisms for those deaths actually to also be further down the track from vaccines. And and um, there are actually a number of mechanisms whereby they the vaccines could cause cancer. And, of course, that was not... Um, tested for in the clinical trials, so we can't at all rule that out. And, in fact, um, you know, I've seen cases where it seems very unusual the way the cancer's developed very quickly and, um, again, a pattern of cancer diagnoses that I haven't seen ever before. Um, and the other thing that doctors, you know, just, just again, I didn't know about this at the start and every new thing I find out just makes me more and more outraged. But but one of them is the um, this concept of... Um, uh, vaccine-associated enhanced disease, which I remember there being a little bit of talk about this early on, but it was it was um, framed as like a respiratory disease, so that like okay, you might just get like a worse like like ARDS or a worse case of COVID. Um, when it was well known pre the vaccine rollout, because this um, I guess really one of the top bodies that that um, deals with vaccine adverse events called the Brighton Collaboration. And this is the group of experts that that bring out case definitions on all vaccine-related adverse events like myocarditis and, and things like that. And so they they um, spent a considerable amount of time with, I believe it was hundreds of experts at a, at a big meeting to discuss this potential risk for vaccine-associated disease. And the reason why that was so pertinent was because previous um, its attempts at bringing out a, COVID, a coronavirus vaccine had caused this and there had been deaths in those studies. And there's a number of vaccines where this has happened before, so RSV vaccine, dengue vaccine. So it's a known phenomenon from vaccines. And, um, and the thing is that that document itself even says that, um, so death is, of course, one of the potential consequences. So that someone has the vaccine, gets COVID and then dies. Um, and it, our population would mirror that because we all had the vaccine and then we were all exposed to COVID and then now we've seen this excess death rate. And the, the document, you know, the guideline even states that that um, it should be reviewed sort of at a population level for things like a disparity of death rates between vaccinated and unvaccinated groups. So all we know is that we've got 
17,000 excess deaths, good luck to anyone trying to actually understand, well, were those people vaccinated? The, the, was the majority of those people, are, are we seeing an increased death rate in vaccinated populations? And um, that, that just has to be spoken about because if that is the case, then it's likely that this is something like vaccine-associated enhanced disease is happening and that phenomena explains a lot of the adverse events that we, that we potentially are seeing. Uh, New South Wales actually did keep a record up until the end of 2022 with the number of vaccinated, uh, in ho the hospitalized people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated, the number of, of deaths in the hospital vaccinated and unvaccinated. And the numbers were so antithetical to the narrative that they cut that data set off at the very yeah. end of the year because there were yeah. zero in ICU with COVID who are unvaccinated and a larger, you know, significant number who are vaccinated. There's a degree to which they clearly don't want the data. You know, they, they you know, you could do autopsies, you could stain for, 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 for spike protein in, in, you know, in the autopsies. Uh, some of the other, uh, so, so there's a the number of, they could just release the data. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, transparency, so, sunlight is the best disinfectant. If you don't want people to, to, to draw false conclusions, release the data, get, get, get us, you know, uh, do, do the testing uh, that would answer the questions. And if you're not doing it, well, it's probably because you're hiding something. Well, you're guilty. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's unacceptable because you know the the vaccine associated enhanced disease is is the um, for all of the vaccines. It's like the one, like the top one that's listed on the post marketing safety plan that each of them. And none of us, no, no one's even talking about this. No one's heard about it. But it's like that was one of that you know, the top requirement that all of the sponsors yeah. had in terms of evaluating the vaccines. And exactly right. How how can they possibly justify not releasing data that actually speaks to that risk? And Fauci admitted that possibility, actually. I have the video clip where he, he talked about the possibility of antibody-dependent enhancement post, mm. uh, you know, as, as a possibility. And we, we do know that the, there's an antibody, with multiple injections, there's an elevation of IgG4, which from what I understand uh, means that your body has sort of been being trained to not react to an antigen. And that could be a mechanism for vaccine-enhanced disease. Uh, as well as the mismatch between a highly mutable spike protein and the vaccine that no longer is close enough to, to what has been been put into your body. And so your body responds with antibodies that don't match the uh, the, the circulating variant. Um, I'd like, yeah, it, it's um, bizarre. Now, Thank you very much for giving up so much of your time this evening. Uh, there was oh, a Senate. Talking to. <laughs> yeah, there was a Senate. Um, there was a Senate hearing in the last couple of days that we're going to discuss. We've got a whole bunch of clips for that, but we won't keep you around for that because we're, you've already been very gracious with your time. But we have been asking our previous guests recently to uh, engage in a little game with us. It's called Build Your Own Fantasy Government. Where we asked our guests, yeah, we asked our guests to pick maybe five or six politicians that they like to maybe build a government around. I'm not going to ask you that specifically. Oh, good. I know you're a doctor. I can think know. of a few, but I don't know if I yeah, could come up with five. Yeah, you don't. You don't want to get political, but I will ask you this question. Now, you were speaking a lot about writing letters to all sorts of different people. I can. I can only imagine that you wrote some letters to some politicians as well. Are there any that helped you along the way? that tried to 
you know, maybe if you wrote them a letter and they responded and tried to help you, there's anyone that you can point to and say they're a good guy or they're a good a good lady. Oh, definitely. I mean, Senator Rennick, I've had spoken to many times and, um, yeah, I mean, he's been a fierce advocate for the injured. I've had a lot of injured who have um, really been helped by, um, yeah, by getting into contact with him. So I think he's done a lot for people who've had injuries. Um Malcolm Roberts I've also um, spoken to and he's, um, I think, equally supportive of of everything. Um, Russell Broadbent as well has been, um, yeah, he's been really advocating of um, at, a, at a sort of political level in terms of advocating for the injured and raising their stories with the politicians. So those are three that come to mind um, straight away, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, the usual yeah. suspects. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, just to finish up, how can people follow you on social media? And again, maybe just you know plug your website for the uh, for the legal case and how people can donate and things like that. Yeah, well, the website is www.covidvaxvaxclassaction.com.au and that's where the legal team will post updates and then there's a link to the claim documents if anyone wants to um, read all of that. And then um, I think partway down the page there's a link to the crowdfunding page which you showed um, before so and of course a link to join the action so the action remains open there's no end date so anybody who's um yeah had an injury or was bereaved and wants to join you know please join and then um yes if anyone can support with the crowdfunding that would be amazing um social media i'm very ad hoc with some days i'll just retweet or repost to call it now um other days i'm just a wall for a week so um but yeah i do have a twitter um dr melissa mccann okay so that's the best way for people to follow you on twitter yeah probably tw- twitter yeah i'm not not on other social media really yeah yeah okay well Again, um, I'm sure Adam and, and Paul might want to finish off by saying something individually to thank you for everything you're doing. But, yeah, I, I agree uh, as well. You know, we we definitely need people like yourself that are willing to stand up, uh, and even if they're standing up alone, uh, just to to kind of just chase the truth and chase what's right. So thank you. Thank you for uh, everything that you're doing. And thank you for coming on tonight's episode and expressing your whole journey with us. It's been really great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for everything that you you guys and everyone's doing. Yeah. No worries. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for your courage. Listen, on your your down days or when you're feeling a little bit tired and weak, just, um, you know, just dig deep and, you know, you've got, um, you've got hundreds, I'm sure you've got hundreds of thousands of people, not just in Australia, but around the world supporting you and probably, um, you know, praying for you and, and sending their strengths to you. Um, you know, I know my wife is super excited that I've got to speak to you tonight and um you know and i'm sure like you know i'll say a prayer for you um next time i'm at church and um i'm sure that you know look the angels and good spirits will be following you along the way i'm I'm sure that, that you're doing it for a reason and um just stay strong i have no doubt that's how it's got to this point so thank you so much <laughs> All right. Well, we want to thank Dr. Melissa McCann for coming on. But what we're going to do now is this uh, recently, a couple of days ago in the Australian Senate, we had the uh, the Pfizer representatives, Moderna, and also the TGA at a Senate hearing. Um, 
and uh, obviously some very good senators asked them a whole bunch of questions that a lot of the time they couldn't answer or just refused to answer. So this is a bit of a hot topic now. We didn't want to keep Melissa McCann too long, so we've let her go, but we'll continue discussing these. Um, I was just going to say, Stephen, she was very gracious with the time. Yes. And um, it's very, it was, it's really good to hear from, you know, people like that. So thank you very much again. Thank you. Yes, no, definitely. Now, to start off, um, this is this is the Honourable Matt Canavan, who I'm not a huge fan of, and especially in the, the early days of the pandemic, he used to get up on TV and say, "Oh well, I walked in, a, I worked in an abbot, what was it, an abattoir or something like that, and we had to get vaccinated there, blah blah blah." So mm. he's kind of a bit wishy-washy, but he's he's asked a good question here. So give the, give the devil his due. This is. Um, uh, and I couldn't find the actual clip, but it actually popped up on Dr. John Campbell's um, YouTube page. So this is where we're getting this clip from, but I'll play it for everyone now. Six weeks later, the official Pfizer Twitter account tweeted that, and I quote, the ability to vaccinate at speed to gain herd immunity and stop transmission is our highest priority. On what evidential basis, what evidence did Pfizer have to make that public statement to imply that vaccination could stop transmission. Senator, I'm not familiar with the context or the details of those comments, but let me just say that the primary purpose of vaccination, the approved uh, product label, the regulatory approvals in Australia and around the world were to prevent infection, prevent severe disease and prevent hospitalisation. That is what our clinical trial program sought to demonstrate. That was what was demonstrated. And that was the evidence that was evaluated by regulatory agencies, by health authorities. And that was the evidence, the strong, robust clinical evidence that led to the approvals uh, that were received in Australia and in many other countries. Could, could I ask you to take that on notice then? Um, the, the, the question being on what, evi what evidence? And he, he had to get him to take it on notice because he'd asked it so many times and he just kept yeah. not answering it. I like Dr. John Campbell's response. Like, well, it, that says it all. So none of us here, I don't know about you, Paul, because you're pretty smart and I don't know if you're a doctor or not, but, like, <laughs> I'm not a doctor. And um, I'm going to tell you something. When he, when a doctor is looking at it and he's just shaking his head and laughing in, in disgust, at what the answers are, yeah. are coming. Well, I haven't got this teed up, but he reacts quite well here, so I might just quickly play play this part for everyone. Whoops. That, that your COVID vaccine is a critical tool to help stop transmission. Sorry, I may have misheard your question. Okay. I was reporting yes, that. I, okay, that's why I re-asked it. I thought you might have misinterpreted it. But is, is your view that the, your vaccine is a critical tool to help stop transmission? Uh, Pfizer's view is that the vaccine is a critical tool in protecting the health of individuals who are vaccinated and enabling society to operate uh, normally as it is uh, at the moment. Well, okay, I, I, I'm taking from that that you, you don't think that it's a critical tool to help stop transmission. You haven't repeated Mr Burla's statement today under oath, so it doesn't sound like you're that confident in it. What I'm concerned about here is that you have a statement from your CEO that is obviously very has huge weight for governments around the world on their regulatory settings, saying that the COVID vaccine could stop transmission or was a critical tool to help stop transmission. Can you point me to any statements made by Pfizer officials, Pfizer officials, uh, the Pfizer CEO, anything that has that has pulled back, that has 
has has uh, somewhat moved away from that very strong statement of Mr Burles in June 2021 that it was a critical tool to help transmission. Have you clarified the record since that time? Uh, Senator, I'm very confident that the evidence that we have presented to regulatory agencies still stands and clearly demonstrates that the vaccine is safe and effective for its intended use. That's not my question. That's not. I'm sorry. I'm very, very sorry to, to pull you up. I don't normally do this, but but we have very limited time, and you are being very, very shifty here. You are not answering the very clear questions. Senator, can so, can I just... well, there we have it. That clip. For... Yeah, there we have it. Indeed, like seriously, yeah. they they just refuse to answer the question. Like, how can you be a a medical professional or any sort of professional, any field that you've gone into, you've gone in, you've studied university for so many years and you're sitting there going, well, I'm not going to stick to the truth. I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to stick to being, you know, uh, standing up for what's real and what's true. I'm just going to dodge the question the whole time and do well, it in such an arrogant way. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that he can't answer the question is that answering the question honestly would, would, would destroy everything that they have, which of course should be destroyed. I mean, the, the vaccines did not step, stop transmission. The the whole notion of mandating something rests on the fact that they stop transmission, and they don't. And so the ma the mandates should have been completely out of the question. Uh, you know, for for that reason, let alone Nuremberg conventions. Well, I so, think somebody. I think somebody just wanted a new, brand new R eight sitting in their driveway. So he just didn't care what was said or how he said it. He just got, had to get through that interview, and that's done. No compassion the whole, there. The whole um, lockdown period and the vaccine rollout, the, lock, the, the, the lockdowns coming to an end, which was a good thing, all predicated on the vaccine stopping transmission. Right. That's right. And they didn't even test for it. They, they, he, he can't even... The mandates and the ending lockdowns uh, depend on it. And then, of course, as soon as Omicron, you know, the, when the when the vaccines got rolled out, that was the beginning of the Omicron wave, and basically the whole country got COVID. Yeah, yeah. And then as we had in our last interview with um, Dr. John, uh, sorry, Dr. Melissa McCann, right, is that, that that in turn can cause an adverse reaction because if you've been immunised against the virus and then received the virus, then that can cause... Uh, an adverse side effect of, of enhanced uh, disease. So there yeah. you go. So, like, really, you know, and I think some of the numbers, I think this is what the problem is, the numbers in in Vayers and the stats that they've been talking about are starting to show that it was um, pretty 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 poor effort on Pfizer's behalf, you know, and, and, and all that COVID fake injection stuff was, was not, not a good result. All right. Well, we'll go to the next clip. Uh, this is Senator Alex Antic, and he's questioning Moderna this time. So, so what, what, what is your, uh, what is Moderna's overall rate of serious adverse events, and how does that compare with routine vaccinations? Was the question. Um, so, um, I, I, I don't have the actual rates of adverse events. Um, to you don't, you don't have the rates of adverse events in I front can, of you. If you just, I can refer to the, uh, I'll see, I can refer to the product information. What I can tell you uh, is that the rates of serious adverse events in our, in our uh, very large randomised controlled trials was actually um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a similar range to what was observed in the placebo. But you, don't, you can't tell me the rates of serious what? adverse. You realise you've come to a Senate hearing today for the purposes of exactly that question, and you can't tell me the rates of serious adverse reactions to your product. 
which I find extraordinary. Well, what I can what I can tell you is that uh, on the TGA website, there are reports. There are one point two reports. Um, That's the TGA. I'm not asking about the TGA. I'm asking about Moderna. You 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 must have that information. You are a multinational company. You're before a Senate inquiry, and you cannot tell me the rates of serious adverse. I mean, it's quite extraordinary what you're telling me. Nobody can tell me that. So, so uh, I, can, I can provide that information um, uh, on notice. Oh, man. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine going to an, a Senate inquiry and you know what they're going to ask and not going in there with the information that, they, that they're likely to present you with? Can you just imagine that? Well, like, what, it's a complete disrespect for a whole system of government. You've been summoned to, uh, you've been summoned to a Senate inquiry to... Advise on 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 the data that they have, and they don't even they can't even refer to it. And the other thing is, is that some of the data uh, passes over things that were clear adverse events. There's something I just put in the in the links is uh, the story of Maddie DeGarry. Uh, she was one of the the under eighteen uh, clinical trial test subjects who uh, after the Pfizer vaccination, she, she was in a wheelchair and eating out of a feeding tube uh, for, you know, and, and I, I don't think she's, I don't think she was ever going to completely recover. Uh, and they removed her from the clinical trials uh, with notes saying that she had stomach issues and that's all. And she's, yeah, she's wheelchair bound and in a feeding <coughs> tube. Um, so that, that, you know, if you look up the story of Maddie DeGarry, uh, and 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 what that family has been through, and that poor girl is not even among the quote adverse events. She was excluded from the trial, um, so she she didn't she wasn't even counted. Um, I'm, you know, I love that um, I love that clip from Senator Antich actually because it shows how frustrating it actually can be. To be, you, we think that the politicians, you know, they get the answers and they have, you know, these people are trying actually. These are the usual suspects we spoke about with um, Dr. McCann. So, you know, these guys tend to be on the ground and they're the nail sticking out of the coffin. You know what I mean? Like they're the ones that are going to get hit next, and they've been pushing really hard and trying to, you know, with with a few things, with, with you know, energy crisis, with the living crisis, with. And, and, and obviously with the COVID crisis, these guys are really against the narrative and these guys have really been, I feel, um, truthful or more truthful to the people than most of the other politicians who aren't even there. So, um, you know, it's a pretty crazy thing. So I, I appreciate um, Senator Antich's um, pen throw. But what do these to, people think they're turning up for? Well, this is what I mean. Like this is, just, and, and as you said before, Stephen, a slap in the face, a slap in the face, not only to the senators in their room, and they're, they're esteemed. You know, senators, politicians are by definition um, above the population. You know what I mean? It says it in. Well, the, look, it this, says is, it, this is the situation. Our taxpayers' dollars funding this whole funded right. this whole vaccine program. These politicians are. Uh, our representatives, they're in there because of us. The yes. government represents the people. So these people from Pfizer and Moderna are going to a Senate inquiry to answer basically to the people, the people yeah. that paid for all this rubbish. 
That's what I mean. It's a slap in the face, not just to them, to us. Yep. To us. Yep. All right. We'll jump to the next one. This is um, Senator Gerard Rennick this time, and he's back against Pfizer. And the teachers <laughs> have maintained that the benefit-risk ratio... That's not the question that I asked. I asked, can you explain why the vaccine causes myocarditis? Yes or no? Senator, the benefit-risk Yes or no. So you clearly don't understand the pathway, do you? Because you can't explain it. I'm not referring to the cost-benefit analysis here. I'm referring to do you understand the biochemical pathway as to why the vaccine causes damage to the heart? Senator, I am happy to take your question on notice and come back to the committee with whatever information we can provide. I might just clarify, I was not referring to a cost-benefit analysis in my previous response. I was referring to the benefit-risk ratio. And health authorities around the globe continue to recommend uh, the benefits. Uh, and that's, of, this isn't the question that I'm asking. Anyway, thanks, Chair. I mean, they, they, when he picked him up on, because he said cost-benefit analysis, right? So they're senators. It's always cost-benefit, you know. He used the wrong word. So you know that that other dog, that guy goes back to the other guy and high-fives and goes, oh, I've got him there. You know, that's what, you know, I've got him on that, you know, cost-benefit, it's risk-benefit, you know what I mean? But he knew what the question was, and I watched that. I watched this whole thing, and basically, in layman's terms, Senator Rennick was asking, why does the vaccine cause, or how does the vaccine cause myocarditis? Is it to do with the lipid nanotechnology? Is it to do with the spike protein, um, you know, getting caught up in the in, in the in the arteries and then, you know, the spike protein growing from there and, and causing inflammation, which causes myocarditis, right? That's what he was asking. And they don't know. They well, don't they know. do that. They just don't want to say. Do you reckon they know? I think in part they, they, they know. The, the spike protein in and of itself can cause endothelial damage. Also, the lipid nanoparticle goes into goes goes throughout the whole body, and some of it is found in, in the heart muscle. So the spike protein, the mRNA goes into the heart muscle. It expresses spike protein. Then the body attacks it. And so you have the body attacking heart muscle that is, has been expressing spike protein. So th th there are some mechanisms they know, but I guess talking about any of them would force them to acknowledge some of the mechanisms of harm that they, they don't really want to call safe and effective. So, yeah. It's just a, it's just a sorry state of humanity when you see someone just continuously dodge a question in such a legal way. Oh, you know. When lives are on the line. But that's yeah. that's yeah, that's Pfizer. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, fancy. Uh, I know. No wonder they. No wonder they did this remotely. No wonder they didn't actually come into the parliament <laughs> to answer these questions. Because imagine, just imagine walking into a, a Senate inquiry and um, having to face this next uh, senator, Senator just, Pauline Hanson. Just before you hit play. If they were in there, right, I'm going to tell you something. With those, with the way they were answering the questions, you would have got a couple of senators would have jumped the, jumped the floor, crossed the floor and thrown punches, I'm telling you. Because, well, they would have at least got some pens thrown at them or something. Oh, well, at least at least a red pen right in the face, you know, right in the eye or something. <laughs> or even a death stare from Pauline would be enough <sighs> Pauline. to Pauline. Well, I reckon personally, like, you know, 
hey, Pauline's a strong woman. I reckon she would have she would have kicked off the shoes, jumped the counter, and gone across and just started slapping them <laughs> on the base. You know, I really, I mean, I can see that more. I can see that. I can I can actually visualize that. You know, um, Doctor Through, you actually made a comment that no one was forced to have the vaccination. Who made the comment? Was it Dr. Thurin? You made that comment? Right. Mm -hmm. You were in Australia during COVID-19. You must have been fully aware that people, nurses, doctors, people to have their jobs, to keep their jobs, were forced to have the vaccination. Now, do you retract your statement that they were not forced? Uh, Senator, no. I, I believe firmly that nobody was forced to have a vaccine. Mandates or vaccine requirements are determined by governments and health authorities. I believe everybody was offered an opportunity to get a vaccine or not get a vaccine. I don't believe that anybody was forced to take a vaccine. A lot of Australians will disagree with you on that one. That's unbelievable. That is so outrageous. Uh, I wanted to bring that up with Dr. McCann too. But yeah. In our society, do, do we have the, the clip that they talk about that Pfizer got their own batch? Is that in your set of clips, Stephen? Yeah. yeah. Oh, That'll oh. be with Malcolm Roberts one. But I'm just going to talk about on that. In our society, okay, what does forced mean? If you're, yeah, right. So, like, the thing is, like, so you've, you've got a choice, okay? So, yeah, all right. No one can – look, I'll, get, I'll put it this way. No one came to your door with a gun pointed to your head, despite what the conspiracy theorists well, and people were talking did. about. Yeah, you know, that, that's still not forced. Like, you want me to shoot you or, or are you going to take the vaccine? By that person's exactly. definition, that's still not forced. It's not forced you because know? you've so got a choice. It's, it's yeah, it's, 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 it's semantics. Yeah, they weren't. Yeah, maybe technically you could make the argument that they weren't forced, but they were certainly coerced. Well, co but coercion is forced i don't like again it's to me it's it might have a when you when you say when you're facing you know not being able to pay your mortgage and support your children right and maybe but maybe buy them a christmas present or something or put food on the table i'm sorry definitely that's forced that's a gun to, in in modern society in australian modern society in in western world modern society that is a gun to your head that is a gun to your head. If you can't pay, if you can't feed your family or pay your mortgage, or you're not allowed to go to work, right, to do those things that you're meant to be doing, that's a gun to your head. And I don't care how how anyone else, I don't care how anyone puts it. Okay? Look, I was I was one of the lucky ones because I was in a financial position where I could wait some time, not not indefinitely, but yeah. there was a, there was a period that I could wait before I had to get the vaccination, but. Let's say I hadn't been in that position. Let's say it had been now, like I'm in a lot, lot worse financial situation now. If this happened now, I wouldn't have the option. I would have to do, I would have to get it. I would be forced into, coerced into doing it. So. I'm, the, I'm, I'm exactly the same, Where's Stephen? the accountability? Where is the accountability? And I'm exactly, I'm gonna, yeah, go, Steve. I suppose you can't put it on Pfizer because it was the government and it was companies and and it wasn't Pfizer forcing people to do it. But, you know, this guy's just clearly in another world. Yeah, I mean, I'm not blaming Pfizer for the for the mandate. I'm not blaming Pfizer particularly for the... I'll blame Pfizer. 
You blame them? But I was going to say. I was going to say. Yeah, the the I mean, you know, the, the amount of control Pfizer has over the media. I mean, th- there's what there's some interrelated web of agencies and, and and groups with pull. It wasn't the governments. I mean, do, do I do I think that that Greg Hunt or Scott Morrison are the ones that were pulling the strings? No, I don't. You know, I, I think the commands came from somewhere, some international group of regulators or very well-heeled lobbyists from the pharmaceutical, whether it's the military, you know, some kind of a military industrial complex, World Economic Forum, or or, or the, the the pharmaceutical industrial complex, don't know. Uh, but uh, but you know the government was the one making the mandate. But I don't think that they were the ones calling the shots. They were just pressing the buttons. Now yeah. you you alluded to this clip, Paul, um, about Pfizer having their own specific batch yeah. of vaccines. Well, this is um, not suspicious at all. No, definitely no. not. Yeah. Definitely not. <laughs> read that um, your vaccine mandate was using your own batch of vaccine especially imported for Pfizer which was not tested by the TGA. Is that correct? Uh, Senator, so Pfizer undertook to import um, a batch of vaccine specifically for the employee vaccination program. Nothing to see there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So why did they do that? Possibly to avoid being sued by their by their employees for vaccine um, adverse vaccine reactions. Well, what comes to my mind is the people who know what actually these things do. They're not going like it, 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 I'm going to 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 squeal if you make me take the stuff that you get in the local pharmacy. I want the special batch, uh, you know, from from headquarters or else. You're you're not getting my silence or cooperation. That's that's what I get out of that. Well, this presidential batch. Yeah, this this brings us to uh, this research article that was actually on uh, Dr. Philip Altman's Substack. Uh, it relates to some Danish data that seventy seventy four percent of serious adverse effects of the COVID vaccines were linked to only four percent of batches. Mm. So yeah. what it's alleging there is, uh, you know, not some maybe some of these vaccine batches or a lot of them were placebos, and uh, and the and the more I suppose problematic batches were the ones that really did the harm to people. Yeah, certainly batch dependence. Uh, ba- some the damage was batch dependent. There's even a website I think called How Bad Is My Batch, where you can find out which batches were the ones that that would cause the the most harm and yes wow. some subset caused by far most of the adverse events Wh- whether the 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 other uh, batch was actual placebo or i don't know watered down or homeo uh, hard hard to say but um but yes uh, well maybe just stored batch. incorrectly at the you know the pharmacy or possibly. the medical center or whatever possibly you know, yeah, some some might have been yeah run run run. Well, one one thing is uh, you know whether it was you know stirred and like if you take if you take the top of a batch versus the bottom of a batch, you might have gotten much more lipid nanoparticle per, per milliliter. Uh, or yes, if it was stored badly, I think there was one study I remember seeing that 
the, they, they, they extended the expiration date of some of it, um, which you're, of course you're not supposed to do. Uh, and I think it actually worked out to be more toxic in that case, which surprised me. I would have figured it would have been less toxic. Uh, but, um, yeah, hard to say why. Um, but, um, but yeah, very suspicious that, that the Pfizer employees, the ones they, the, the vaccines that got mandated was a special imported batch. Uh, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't say anything for how comfortable people should be in, in getting it from their pharmacy, that the employees who know what's in it, uh, won't take the batch off the street. The guys who made it. Imagine, imagine if they, um, Oh, what was I going to say? Imagine if they imagine if that got out on the news that um, that the Pfizer employees are getting their own special batch imported. How, do you think you'd still have hundred? Do you think you still have people running into um, rolling up their sleeve to get it done? We'll, we'll see. It's out now, right? Well, we'll find out soon enough. Well, you know, I heard a saying recently that the truth will come out eventually. But all they can manage is how long it takes for that truth to come out. So all we can do is thank senators like Canavan, Antic, Rennick, Hanson, Roberts, and everyone else that have been trying to use things like Senate inquiries to expose the truth. And thank God for our system of government, which allows these things to take place. Because if we were living in, say, for example, a communist country, maybe we wouldn't have that opportunity. So, or if we passed a medical mis or a misinformation bill, yeah, uh, you know, then, then yeah. yeah, yeah, then we'd be in trouble. Then we'd be in yeah. trouble. Then we'd be in trouble. But um, I don't, I don't know what else there is to say. You know, hopefully, uh, I don't think we'll know the full story. Uh, but I'm sure there's a lot more that will come out, as as Dr. Melissa yeah. McCann said. Uh, if there was a discovery process in her legal case, she's finding out things almost every day. And yeah. uh, likewise, if you follow uh, Dr. Philip Altman's Substack, he's releasing yeah. articles all the time. I recommend people to do that. You get uh, at least one email a day, at least. Yeah. He's a busy yeah. man. He's, yeah. yeah. So they're the types of people uh, that we have to thank. And it's, uh, it's really an honour to be able to bring them on this uh, platform and be able to interview them and uh, yeah. hear their stories, just to hear their stories from going from just being a doctor to suddenly, you know, almost suing your own profession. Yeah. It's, a, it's quite, a, quite a journey. So um, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Paul, thank you very much for joining thank us. You. Tonight. Thank, thank you guys for what you do. Hey, it's all right. Thank you very much. Hey, it was fun tonight. I liked I liked that little bit at the end as well with the we you know we get to talk about clips and things like that and just to, you know just let people see that you know we're we're learning just as much as everybody else and uh, it's good. To, we don't have all the answers and we you know but we ha we have the amazing ability and we're lucky enough to be able to bring people experts to the forefront. Yeah. And that's that's the great thing. That's what I think. That's the that's our greatest gift that we've done for the to the COVID, you know, misinformation, disinformation pandemic of um, you know, is that we've got different people on to really you know lay out the facts and information that they have to help you make an informed decision and 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 you know, and why am I now? Why is my you know eye falling out of the side of my head? And why is my why are my ears ringing? You know, like these 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 things are the. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to make light of it, but. Um, these things are serious and people don't aren't still not making the link 
between why all of a sudden am I 30 years old and blind in one eye? You know, like people don't understand that. The, the, the degree of denial is amazing, but yeah, we'll do what we can. Well, thank you, everyone, for watching. Please um, share this out as best you can, uh, even if you have to direct message people to do it. I think that's a that's probably the best way these days with a lot of the censorship that's been going on. But I really want to thank the audience, and I want to thank some of our previous guests that have been sharing our stuff and getting it out there. Our, our numbers are starting to tick up, which is um, which is good because we have. It's not just about us; it's about the guests that we get on and the information that they give us. I think a lot of it needs to um, be put in people's um, people's heads that. Uh, that this stuff that this stuff is out there, and that there are good people out there, um, you know, trying to expose the truth, and or you know, that have their own journeys and stories and everything to tell. And if you just check out our Instagram page, I, I sent this message to Adam yesterday. The if you just people look we've at, interviewed, the people that we've interviewed along this way, and they're not all up here, but um, you know, this has been quite a ride and a journey for us, just the two of us, Adam and uh, and myself. Um, but, you know, some of these people are just, uh, you know, politicians, experts, oh. just ordinary people who have their own stories. It's been you know, a, superstars a that are on Neighbours even. I mean, like far out, you know, like that was, you know, Nicola Charles is a bit of a highlight of mine. I'll, I'll be a bit of a fanboy. Like that was pretty amazing. We've got, we've had the likes of, you know, the beautiful Evelyn Ray, you know, I mean, she's been a wonderful guest. Um, you know, we've had amazing, you know, Dr. Robin Cosford, you know, like gee whiz, you know, she was like, I, I said to Stephen, you know, when I was watching, I watched that one back a little bit quite often because you can see her aura, and I'm sure this is going to be the same with um, with um, Dr. McCann, you can see her aura grow as mm. she gets into it and starts speaking about it. In my mind, I don't know, I'm imagining like this glow around these people because they're, you know, they're, they're wonderful people who are have put their careers, they've put their lives on hold to, to do this, you know, uh, it's Anyone going into anyone facing a court battle, and going in, and then you know that's in the trenches of modern society, being in court for a long period of time, it's not fun. And um, it, you know, well, this is every every grey hair in this beard is from a day in court. You know what I mean? So, you know, like it's not it's not an easy it's not an easy life. So it's not an easy task, and it's um, very daunting to take on. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor, it doesn't matter who you are, unless I think unless maybe you're a lawyer. If you're actually a proper lawyer, you know, but 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 the thing is too, if you're defending somebody or trying to defend yourself, it's also a different thing. So um, yeah, I commend all those people and all those guests um, that have come on. All right, well we'll wrap it up there. Thank you everyone Thanks. for watching, and we'll see you next time.